Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. We worship together at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, both in person and online at youtube.com slash area10church. Kid-friendly programming is also available at the same time just down the street at 2810 at Community Gathering Place. We hope to see you at the Bird Theater soon. Now, on to this week's message. I want to jump right into it today. Normally I like warm you up by some, I don't know, whimsical thing I got off the internet. But today I want to, uh, I just want to jump right into this because we've been studying the life of Jesus and walking with him as he walks around the Sea of Galilee in in the book of Luke for, we're going to go through about four chapters over the next couple months. And uh, there's a lot to get to here. And I want to compare two things that happened, a story that we're going to read from Luke chapter 5, an account of Jesus uh, and Peter uh, on the lake, uh, and then another one from John chapter 21, and both of these kind of bookend Jesus' ministry. So the one we're going to read in Luke 5 is at the beginning of Jesus' kind of teaching, and then the one in John 21 is three years later after the crucifixion and resurrection. There's another uh, encounter between Jesus and Peter on the lake, and I want to read them both to you. There's some similarities and some contrasts that I want to point out. But Luke chapter 5, starting with verse 1, let's jump right into this. Uh, On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. All right, so it's a a fish story, right? That that this encounter that Peter has, Simon Peter has, with with Jesus on the lake. Um, Again, three years later, John 21 He's going to record something similar that happens. John 21, starting with verse 1, it says this. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon and Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it, was him, that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. The, that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out onto land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. 
So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. All right, so there's some similar stories here. They, they mention what sounds like different lakes, but it's all the same lake. Galilee, Gennesaret, the Sea of Tiberias, just different names for the same place. This, this low freshwater, it is, uh, geographically, is the lowest lake on earth. That's a freshwater lake. So there's this lake in northern Israel, uh, the Sea of Galilee, and they're, and they're fishing there. And in both situations, they didn't catch any fish. They fished all night. They didn't catch any fish. And then Jesus gives them some instruction about fishing again during the daytime. And they catch so many fish that their nets are breaking. In the first, in the first account, it said their net was breaking and the, the, the boat was sinking. The second account says that their net was breaking. Um, and then there's this sort of moment of Peter having a reaction to what he's experiencing with Jesus. Um, and and it, it, like, it's a miracle. And there's this extreme reaction we get from Peter that we're going to get into in a second. All right, the first story in Luke 5. This happens at Capernaum. We talked about Capernaum last week. Jesus had been healing people, teaching people. He cast out demons. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. All of this is happening at Capernaum. Capernaum is near, is right on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and it is near this place called the Seven Springs of Tabga. There was these hot springs in the hills, and the springs would, would, the water would flow down to the sea. So you have the cold water of the Sea of Galilee with the hot springs mixing together. That warm water area was very popular for fish, so Capernaum became a, a, a very uh, important fishing, a commercial fishing village. So people would go there, they'd go out into this sort of warm water, and they would catch fish. Now the way they would catch fish in that day is not like a dude with a rod, right? They've got these nets, and there would be these large nets, uh, hundreds of feet wide, uh, set in kind of this frame. So they'd have this large nets, and they would have a smaller mesh net inside the larger net. So you got these drag nets with these smaller mesh nets in it. And they would, they would put it down underneath the boat. And what they would do is they would go out at night, um, really so the fish wouldn't see them coming. Like, that's kind of how it works. So they'd go out at night, and they would drop these large nets down to the bottom of the, of the, the sea floor. And they, they'd put that out under their boat, and then they would stomp about on the boat and make a bunch of noise, and it would scare the fish. And then the fish would try to swim away, and they would go down, and they would, like, swim into the net. And then they would just keep swimming, just keep swimming, and they would get caught uh, through the larger nets and then into the smaller nets, and they would get caught. And so then they'd pull the nets up, and they'd dump out all the fish. And they would do this 10 to 15 times overnight. And after they had done that, on a good haul, they'd catch between one and 200 pounds of fish. This is kind of, they've done research on this. This is kind of the way fishing worked back in that day. And so um, they, 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 they do this. And, and in this first encounter, um, Jesus is walking along and he's teaching. As usual, a crowd of people is following him as he teaches. And he walks along the shore. And he sees them out, he sees them there, they're cleaning their nets. They didn't catch any fish, but you've got to clean all the silt off the nets because you used them all night. And Jesus is like, hey, can I borrow your boat? So they get in the boat, they go sit out on the water so that the crowd is not rolling up on Jesus. And he teaches people from the boat. The people are out on the shore, he's out on the boat so he can get a little bit, you know, some personal space, right? So he teaches. And then he tells Peter, hey, uh, throw, throw your nets in and, uh, again to catch fish. Now, this is interesting because Jesus is a, a, a rabbi teacher. So he is a, um, a learned, scholarly person in the Old Testament, that kind of thing. Like, he knows the scripture really well. What he is not is a commercial fisherman. And Peter's a commercial fisherman. And so when Jesus says, hey, throw your nets out, let's catch some fish, Peter being like, I mean, you got to think that Peter's like, okay, <laughs> all right, look, I, 
I know you know the God stuff and like you teach really well there, religious guy. And like um, I saw you do that water into wine thing at Cana. That was super cool. Um, you healed my mother-in-law. I'm kind of thankful about that. So, you know, like, you know, like he, 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 he had already seen some stuff that was impressive. But you got to think Peter was a little bit like, okay, okay. But like this isn't how you catch fish, Jesus. Like we do this at night so they don't know we're coming. You, this, isn't, this isn't going to work. But okay, you're the guy. I guess I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And he puts out these nets. And, and, and in both situations, Jesus tells them, and both Luke and John tells them to throw out their nets during the day when you just don't do that. And both Luke and John give little details that I think adds authenticity to these accounts. Because we can read this like, us, oh, it's just like a fish story. Like those are exaggerations and legends and myths. This does not read like a legend or a myth. There are specific details. John says they caught 153 fish. That is not symbolic. That doesn't mean like, oh, it's the 12 tribes of Israel plus that, like, no. It's 153 fish. The reason he said that is because that's how many fish they caught. They counted that. These are little details that are given. Oh, he's 100 yards off the shore. These are details that are given that are incredibly unusual details to give in the ancient world. Like, we might write a story, and even if we were making up a story today, we might write it with those kind of details to make it sound authentic. In the ancient world, nobody wrote like this. Compare this to, like, Homer's Odyssey. Way, way different. These are very specific details that suggest this is like eyewitness stuff. They're talking about what actually happened and trying to report this accurately. So notice how... Um, how Jesus telling Peter to do this, notice how this lands on, on, on Peter. I mean, he's seen Jesus do miraculous things, but the thing he's doing now is Peter's livelihood. This is speaking to the world that Peter knows. And he's a fisherman, and Jesus is like, all right, let's even talk about that. And Peter had a frustrating night of work, and there's this moment that even though he knows Jesus is miraculous and he can rebuke fevers and he can cast out demons and all of these things, there's this moment where Peter's like, oh, wait, this guy can do everything, including my work. Like, this is personal. This is what Peter does to feed his family that's at home. Like, this is a big deal. And, and, and suddenly it just gets real to Peter in a way that, water into wine at the, at the wedding in Cana or, or casting out demons, the way these other things that he's seen, those things aren't as real maybe as this. So he, he has this encounter and Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men or I'm gonna, from now on you're going to catch men. In other words, um, Jesus is really calling Peter and asking him to follow Jesus around and, and learn how to lead and teach and reach people, not just catch fish. And that's significant because for Peter to do that, for him to just follow Jesus around as he teaches, he's got to leave his fishing job, which means how does he take care of his family? And he's got to leave it with other family members, and he's got to make sure that it's okay. So it's a big, it's a big ask that Jesus is making of Peter and, and for him to follow him around and basically give up his job. And it is this moment where Jesus is very real to Peter, and Peter probably realizes what this is going to cost him. And I wonder if you've had that kind of moment where Jesus got real to you. I think modern Americans in general are okay with Jesus, like as a concept, as a 
mythical figure in history, as someone that some people like in the historical timeline, they're okay with Christianity as a philosophy or an idea. Oh, Christian principles, those are nice things. We should be do unto others as we'd have them do unto us. Like, okay, I, I think that stuff sounds pretty good. And maybe you feel that way when you come to church and, and you're involved. You go, well, I hope I get some good practical ideas today, a little nugget of, of, that I can take with me this week that's going to just kind of help me through the week, just something I can chew on a little bit, um, and, and, and that'll, be, that'll be good. That's all very different than coming face-to-face with the actual God of the universe, to come face-to-face with Jesus. That can be uh, maybe odd, scary. Maybe some of it will seem like weird or impractical. Here's a couple things I get from this story. Number one is this. God is not always practical. God is not always practical. His advice on both occasions was, let down your nets during the day. That is not good fishing advice. There's no, if Peter's going to do the math of like, what should I do to, to catch fish? That ain't it. It's impractical advice, and God is not always practical. Especially, I guess I would say it this, this way, God is not always just giving advice. Like advice, when we hear advice, we think, oh, give me advice, I will take it or not take it. That's not what Jesus is doing to Peter. He's not saying, here's, some, here's an idea, try it, maybe. And Peter's like, let me figure that out. Was that going to work? No, Peter's like, I don't think that's going to work, but because you say, I'll do it. That's what obedience looks like. He's not, Peter's not taking Jesus' advice on fishing. He's obeying his king. He's obeying the master and going, okay, I'll, just, I'll do what you say because you said it. This is key for us as disciples of Jesus. Jesus teaches many things, and you can read everything Jesus teaches about sex, about money, about, about career, or about heaven and hell, or how to pray, or relationships. You can read all of these things, and you can take them all as advice, and you can go, maybe I'll believe that, maybe I won't. Or you could take it something more like, these are commands from the king. Disciples are the people who say, this is, he's in charge, I'm not, and I'm going to do what he says. I'm not just going to listen for good advice. I'm going to do what Jesus actually says. I think, honestly, for me, uh, this, is, this is hard for me. Like, I will obey Jesus if the commands he gives me seem practical. Like, if he tells me to do something and I sort of, like, run the math in my head and I go, oh, that makes sense, I could do that, um, then I'll obey it. But really, when I do that, when I say that, like, I'll only obey you, Jesus, if you make it very practical, really what I'm saying is I will obey me and my sense of reason and judgment, and then if you could just kind of give it a stamp of approval, then I'll feel a little better about doing it, but I'm really only going to do what makes sense for me and what I think is going to be best for me in every moment. Only at the point of following Jesus with something that is impractical or that may not make sense, only at that point am I really obeying him. And this is a big challenge for us because as kids growing up, our parents would tell us to do things. And what is the question as soon as you're about old enough to speak, what's the question kids start asking about when you tell them to do something? They say, why? 
Why? It's the, parent, it's the question every parent has heard, and you explain to them, you know, you've got to you put your shoes on, because if you don't, we're going to be very late, and why do you keep losing your shoes? And, you know, like, we go through that whole thing with kids. But eventually, and your parents did it, and you became a parent, and you never wanted to say this, but eventually it slips out of your mouth, you say, because I said so. Right? And you feel bad in that moment that you're becoming your dad, or whatever, and you're just like, oh. I said the thing I vowed I would never say because I said so. But really what we're saying is there's relationship here and I'm, I'm in, in this situation, I'm the authority in the, in the realm here and I just want you to do it and follow. And I'm not, not going to get into all the reasons why and all the ins and outs of all the things that some of which are too complicated for you to understand. You just need to trust me on this one and go with it. And in some ways, following Jesus and, and, and knowing God it's like that. It's the true test of obedience. Do you have to know why or will you just do it anyway? Because I think sometimes the actual blessing from God and the greatest blessings we will receive from God are not going to come until we do something just because God says so. Not because we've worked it all out and figured it all out and it makes all the sense. I'm a big why guy. I, I want to know why. I think it's a form of control in my life. I say I want to follow God, but honestly, sometimes when the pressure is on and things are disrupted and things are hard, in those moments, I want to take control of everything and make it work out right and run my life my way. And this account of Peter and Jesus reminds me that following God is, and, and what God will tell us to do is not always practical. It just isn't. Sometimes it's not always going to make sense. And the second thing I get out of this um, is that getting close to God does not always bring warm fuzzies. Look at Peter's response when the boat starts to sink, the, the fish come in in Capernaum and the boat starts to sink. Look at Peter's response. I'll read it to you again, Luke 5, verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Don't you think that's an odd reaction? So you're in a boat. There's two boats. There's so many fish that the boats are now sinking. And your reaction is, to the guy who made you catch the fish, your reaction is, get away from me. I'm sinful. I think I would have a different reaction in that moment. I think my reaction would be, Jesus, take the wheel. Like, would you fix the boat, please? We're going to die here. We're, we're, Jesus, help me. It wouldn't be, you need to get away from me. I am a sinful man. But that actually is, is Peter's reaction. He calls him Lord. And it's, and it's weird because Peter's already seen Jesus do things. He's seen the water into wine. He's seen the healings, the demons, the casting out, all of that stuff. He's seen all of those things. But in this thing, in the thing he knows really well, in his world, in this thing that is so personal and so important to him, in this moment, he's like, oh, oh, th this guy, this Jesus guy is serious. He can even make fish do what he wants to do. And Peter's response to that is, oh, no. I am no good at all. Now, if you know the Old Testament, that 
response from Peter shouldn't surprise you. There's actually a long history of that when people get close to God. In Genesis, we read about Jacob, and Jacob stays up all night and wrestles with God. He has this image of God, can't see very clearly, and he never gets to really look God in the face. But just that encounter of wrestling with God overnight, he walks away with a limp because he couldn't, in a sense, he couldn't handle that. Um, Moses wants to see the face of God, and God's like, you can't do that. Stand over here. I'll walk by, and you can kind of see me as I pass, like from the side or from behind. Moses does that, and he comes down and talks to the people, and his face is glowing because he's been that close to God. Isaiah has this vision of God in his temple, and he sees it in a vision. He sees God, and Isaiah's response is when he sees God, not, wow, God's amazing. Wow, this is impressive. Isaiah's response is, Woe to me, I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. That's the response of getting that close to God. It's not like, this feels so nice. This is like touched by an angel. It's like, it's warm, it's comforting. I just felt that, like, it's none of that. It is terrifying is how people feel when they get that close to God because of his greatness, but because you recognize the contrast between him and you. Drawing close to God is sort of like being ripped apart. There's a German philosopher of religion named Rudolf Otto, and he wrote in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he wrote a book called The Idea of the Holy. Now, he's a, a, an anti-supernatural, very secular guy, but he's writing about what is religious experience like for people who get close to deities. And, and he writes about this and says whenever, and you see this in the most primitive religions to the most advanced religions, whenever some, someone gets close to the deity, to get close to God or gods in their, in their worldview, um, they have this experience called numinous, what he calls numinous awe. And when he describes numinous awe, it's actually very similar to what the Bible would describe. Numinous awe is a traumatic experience of being ripped apart by opposing strong, passionate responses. So on the one hand, when you are close to God, you are attracted. You are, you're drawn to him. You are overwhelmed. You are you, 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 there's love there. You, the, the more you see of God, the more you want. But on the other hand, you are frightened to death. There's something about it that can be hurtful or, or, or you're in pain or you're, you're scared being that close. And this is what Rudolf Otto saw in, in religion and said this, this numinous awe thing is when people are close to God, it feels like they're being ripped apart. You've probably had that experience in a very small level with like some people. Do you know those people that are like, like ridiculously good looking or super smart, right? You, you probably have friends. You probably had that friend in high school or whatever, like whatever. You've, got, you've known people like that. What is, what is the reaction you have to them? On the one hand, you're drawn to them. You want to be closer. You want to be around them. Oh, I'm so interested, inspired. I want, to, I want to be near someone like that. But on the other hand, you're a little bit repulsed or repelled by them, right? You're like, oh, you're intimidating, or I'm not as smart as you, or I'm not as pretty as you, or I'm not, you know, like there's, there's, there's that, that kind of reaction. That's, 
That's numinous awe and, and the smallest degree when, when we have that, that, both of those reactions because of who they are and then how we feel in contrast. And this is what Peter's experiencing. Depart from me, O oh Lord, I'm a sinful man. He's blown away by what he sees and is also very aware that he ain't it and that he doesn't measure up. I think this is the challenge for us just in the human condition for us to come to God. There's a sense that we can't live with God. We can't get that close. We're afraid of getting burnt. But we also can't live without him. I had this conversation just this past week with someone about, um, about this idea that God teaches us things and God pushes us towards things that are very uncomfortable. And the more you know doesn't mean it necessarily gets all much easier and more comfortable. The more you know, sometimes it gets more uncomfortable. The, the ideas that God would teach, that, that there's an all-knowing, all-loving creator of the universe who would willingly send people to hell, that's uncomfortable. I don't, that's, there's power there, but I'm uncomfortable with it. That there's an all-knowing, all-loving God who would put parameters around my sexuality and all of my sexual choices, I don't like that. That's uncomfy. Um, that this God made our bodies to function a certain way, and I don't choose what those ways are. Like, he's, he decides how this is going to be. Like, I, I don't know if I trust him. I don't know if that's, that's good. That's uncomfortable. The idea that the creator God of the universe has wrath and that he would actually have this righteous anger towards anyone, like, that's, that's uncomfy. So we're in this weird spot. To get close exposes us to some things that are scary. So we, we run away. But, the, but that creates more problems. We run away from God, and then we, we go through life with a sense of emptiness, a sense of uh, a void there. And we go like, I know there should be more and I'm sensing that I was created for. We have this, this spiritual hunger, this longing. But it's, it's hard. It's, it's hard to be close to God and it can be so hard to be far away. We feel this, we, we feel that. Um, we, are, we, we long for God but are in some way repulsed. And in, in light of that, Peter's reaction seems actually pretty normal. Getting cl- that close to Jesus brought him some tension. And this is why when people say, man, I just feel so close to God in nature. I feel so close to God when I'm serving others. I feel so close to God on the golf course. I get why we say that. But sometimes I wonder, like, is there any tension there? Like, is it scary on the golf course? Like, when you're in nature, are you, like, scared? Is there, like, ooh, I don't, like, because that's what getting close to God often felt like in the Scriptures. Getting close to God, and we want it to always feel so gentle, but I think oftentimes it's like a storm. It's a storm on the lake. A storm on the lake is going to kick up all the junk from the bottom, and, and being close to God is, is, is like that. So if I've described God that way, and you can see the examples in the scripture where that's the case, you're probably wondering, why would I want to be close to God at all then if it's actually like that 
that terrifying. But I want you to know there's a solution to that problem too. The reason we challenge people and we ask people in this church to be baptized is because when we are baptized, we give our lives to Christ and um, we are saying, I'm going to be your disciple, you're going to be the leader, the savior, and I'm going to follow you with my life. Which means that although we are sinful, although there is this thing in us that's very real of I am a man of unclean lips and I've said done and done things I regret and I'm not a good person, I know all of that's in us. Although that is there, what we understand from Scripture is that Jesus was perfect and sinless and his righteousness, him being right before God, gets given to us. And so he takes all of our sin and gives us his righteousness so that we can stand before God. The idea that you can't stand before God and live, yeah, that's all over the ancient world, the scripture, lots of religions. Like that, that idea is there. It is a terrifying thing. But what we learn in the New Testament is that we can stand before God because of Jesus, because we've given our lives to him, because we've been baptized into him, and he covers us. He makes it okay for us to be able to stand there. This is why the scripture tells us we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can be confident. We don't have to, oh, I can't, I can't do this. And you see even that contrast with Peter. That first story, his reaction to the fish overwhelming the boat is, Jesus, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. The last story, though, in John 21, when the, almost the same thing happens, Jesus's, or Peter's response is to put on his clothes, jump in the water, and swim to Jesus as fast as he can. And the first story says, get away. And the second one, he's like, I got to get as close to you as possible. What's the difference between those two stories? Is Peter just way better? Is he just like a better guy at this point? Like, yeah, he's walked with Jesus for three years at this point. He's learned from him. You could say he's holier. He makes better decisions. Maybe he cusses not like a sailor anymore, a fisherman. Maybe he's like, you know, maybe there are some things that you'd be like, oh, he's like a better person. But that's not it. That's not the difference. Because, like, not, not long before that last story happens, Jesus had, or Peter had denied Jesus three times. It's not like Peter had, was just nailing it, you know, and now he feels very comfortable being close to Jesus because he's really, really good. The difference is Jesus had died for Peter's sins, and Peter was now a disciple, and he was covered, and he knew that, man, this guy Jesus has power and strength, and he's dangerous, but it is good to be near him. And, I, and I, it is a good, safe place to be. If God is God, then it's normal that we might have some fear and trembling when we approach him. But if he is loving, and he has covered us, and we've been baptized into him, then we can approach him with confidence. We can be in, pro, in the presence of something so strong and so dangerous, yet we can feel secure. And so my hope is that you would consider where you are. If, you, if, if your thought and, and concept of God right now is very like, meh, I, I don't think you're considering really who God is. There, there's the creator, the almighty creator of the universe, if you're just kind of like, eh, about that, you're, you're, you're not there yet. And if, you're, if your thought of God, when you think of God as, oh boy, like, that's big, that's scary, that's a little much. Okay, now you're closer. Now you're getting closer to the truth. Now you're where Peter was in the first story. 
I would say don't back away from that. Lean into it and go farther. And you'll get to where Peter is in the last story. Where you're like, oh, he is a lot. And it's okay. And it's actually good. And that's, that's my hope and prayer is that we would push through that and, and land and, and really land there. Today, when we're done with this service, we are going to... Uh, we're going we're gonna to go over to 2810, just down the street here, and we've we got three people that are going to be baptized. And I would highly encourage you to come over. We're going to kind of tear down in here, and we'll be down there a few minutes after the service ends. We're going to baptize people in the back room of 2810, and we're going to celebrate. Because people are making decisions to follow Jesus, and they're saying, okay, this is scary, but I'm, I'm going to keep going and, and be in. And I would invite you, if, if, if you haven't been baptized, come talk to us after the service. Um, I'll be up there at the Next Steps table. You can come talk to me if you'd like. Uh, there'll be people down here to pray for you. You can talk to them. And, and maybe you could make that decision too and, and follow after him and say, okay, I'm, I'm in. To, to, to move from, depart from me from a sinful person to I'm ready to jump out of the boat and swim all the way to you. I'm, I'm, I'm in. Uh, I really encourage you with that also. Let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, uh, thank you for um, the example you show us and, and for investing in a guy like Peter who had a lot of the same doubts and concerns and fears and the trembling and the frustration that we have. And he's made a lot of mistakes, and we see it all recorded there for us, and it's real. Uh, God, I, I pray that we take these accounts of your interactions with Peter and we learn from them and we see how we can be changed and grow and we can flourish. Um, thank you, Lord, for um, your family here, the community. May we grow, may we become people who are aware of where we fall short, but who are confident and lean on your grace to cover that. Um, thank you for being a good God to us and loving us and allowing us to be in your presence and, 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 and allowing us to, to work with you and be near you. Uh, God, may we be better disciples as we learn to walk on, on this way and on this path. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.